From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. The Biden administration has a new national strategy on advancing gender equity and equality. The administration will work on 10 priorities related to gender equity. The priorities center on economic security, health, education, climate change, and more. A recent fact sheet says this strategy is a government-wide responsibility and that implementation will require leadership involvement across all federal agencies. The Office of Management and Budget will lead implementation efforts and track the progress of achieving the White House's goals. White House officials are seeking feedback and insight from federal employees. Office of Management and Budget has released a government-wide pilot program called Federal Employee Voice Pulse Surveys to hear employees' thoughts about return to office plans, engagement, and inclusion in the workforce. These surveys will go out about every two months and include three to four questions each. OMB will collect the data, evaluate it across agencies, and then adjust the surveys for future versions. The pilot will include about two million federal employees across 24 agencies. The House of Representatives has passed a new bill called the DHS Software Supply Chain Risk Management Act. It would require federal contractors to share the origins of all software components they use on government projects. The bill would also require contractors to include certification that there are no security risks and a plan to resolve any detected issues. The bill passed 412 to 2 and will now move to the Senate. The Pentagon has launched three suborbital rockets as part of its goal of advancing hypersonic technologies. These launches come shortly after China tested its own hypersonic vehicle. The U.S.'s Joint Hypersonics Transition Office, which just turned a year old, aims to establish a robust hypersonics workforce and research community. Jillian Bussey is director of the Joint Hypersonics Transition Office. Jillian, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Hypersonics has been in the news a lot lately. There's been tests, there's been successes, failures. Update us on where things stand with hypersonics technology. Okay, um, so we we have um, a, a lot of exciting programs. Um, I, I think we're really excited about the successful Hawk test that occurred about a month ago um, from Raytheon. Um, that was great because not only um, did it demonstrate um, the ability of a, a new performer to, to enter into this arena. Um, so we have some diversification of our industrial base, um, but also we have diversification of options. So Hawk is an air breathing scramjet engine. Um, it's, it's more of a tactical system. So it's a very nice complement to the conventional prompt strike program. So we now have um, two viable options that, that we know have worked. Um, you know, things are pretty exciting as well. Um, we're working through the budget process right now. And, um, you know, we've seen significant plus ups. Um, we're getting a lot of support from Congress. And, um, you know, I, of course we can, can do more, um, but, you know, we, we've also seen the Army, for example, um, has a, a battery ready to go um, with the first hypersonic weapon, uh, the long range hypersonic weapon. Um, and so the, the missile will fall along shortly within a year or so. So um, we're pretty excited about all the progress we've had on these sounding rockets. They give us um, a great opportunity to at low cost and very quickly test 
um, new technologies before we put them into these more expensive flight tests. So you're yeah, a lot going on. Your office has been up and running for just over a year now. What are you trying to accomplish? So our job is to essentially um, speed speed up the transition of hypersonic technology to warfighters, speed up the development. So we do that in sort of four overarching ways. Um, we're focused on capability-based hypersonic S&T, making sure that our um, our investments are tied to a warfighter need. Um, we're not really able to afford anymore to just do science for the sake of science. Um, we need to be joint. So we're working to make sure that the community works together, that the best ideas um, are folded into our programs no matter where they come from. Um, we're working on expanding the DoD hypersonics ecosystem. Um, there are folks in the university system, uh, folks overseas that are our allies who have a lot to contribute. Um, so at the J show, we have a university consortium, which has over 84 universities involved. It's working on um, applied hypersonic technologies. And then um, we're working, you know, like I said, with our allies, Australia, uh, the UK, Norway. And then um, we set up a system engineering field activity to monitor and facilitate transition of the technologies or funding to the warfighter. So Jillian, why work with universities? What's the advantage there? Um, so our universities do a couple of things for us. Um, one, we, we have some of the best and the brightest in our universities. Um, we have scientists who have been working in basic research, but they have some great ideas. Um, they're on the cutting edge. They're ready to transition their technologies, but they don't have anywhere to go unless they, you know, they start up a, a, a startup or a small business. Um, they also are um, training the next generation so we, we definitely need a lot more engineers and scientists working in hypersonics. So those professors are, you know, they're bringing us our new workforce. So we want to invigorate those students, invigorate those professors. We want to get them to work on our problems. Um, we know when we look at the papers that the Chinese have published that um, their university students get to work on um, real problems and you know, they get to fly things and they're motivated and they, they join their programs. And so um, let's let loose that community um, to work on our problems. You know, Jillian, I know you have a, a background in the intelligence <clears throat> community. How do you keep China and Russia from stealing American hypersonic technology? Um, I think we're certainly at a disadvantage. Um, our, our system being much more open um, is a lot a lot easier to, to get into. Um, I think the Chinese also viewed their language as a, a classification in and of itself. Um, so, you know, they have that going for them. But I, I think to, to protect our technologies, um, we need to be, we certainly need to be more careful. You know, have the right cyber protections, um, you know, do more vetting uh, of the people we have work on our, our technologies. So at the University Consortium, um, we've limited it to Five Eyes citizens and U.S. citizens only, um, and we we apply a vetting process. Um, we, you know, we want to make sure that our technologies that we're not funding the the PRC, um, you know, People's Liberation Army, um, and I, I think it's just being a lot more careful on what we put out there openly. Um, you know, perhaps maybe there was an arrogance in the past that we could just publish anything we wanted um, that you know, no one would be able to replicate it or pick it up, but the, the Chinese certainly did. So, uh, you know, cyber protections, um, more closely vetting and 
And just being more careful on what you put out in the open could certainly help. Okay, Julian, 10 seconds. What are you most excited about uh, among the projects that you're working on? I'm most excited about our, our High Flight 2 effort with Boeing and Aerojet, which is a dual-mode ramjet that we are um, maturing the propulsion system for so that the Navy can have an option for its F-18s to launch hypersonic cruise missiles. Uh, so that's about a $50 million effort. All right, well, Julian, thanks so much. Nice talking to you. You too, thank you. Coming next, advancing equity with multiple White House initiatives. Still ahead on Government Matters, my conversation with an expert at OMB about assessing and advancing equity in the federal workforce. We'll be right back. Equity initiatives for the Biden administration focus externally on services to the American public and internally on the federal government workforce. Having multiple executive orders to address issues of equity is extremely helpful. That's according to Kimberlyn Leary. She's a senior equity fellow at the Office of Management and Budget and a senior vice president at the Urban Institute. Kimberlyn, welcome to the program. Thank you, Amy, for having me. Delighted to be here. So there are now two executive orders from the president regarding advancing equity and inclusion. Outline what they are for us and what the administration is trying to accomplish. Of course. So the racial equity EO is the very first executive order signed by President Biden. And it affirms the importance and responsibility of government delivering effectively and equitably to the American public. And so that executive order focuses on government agencies delivering equitable outcomes in the services, programs, and other activities that they offer. What's important about this executive order is that it tasks both the Domestic Policy Council and the Office of Management and Budget, where I sit, with supporting agencies to do two main things. The first is to stand up an equity assessment of programs and services and other activities to determine if there are barriers to equity. And the second thing it asks all agencies to do is to identify action plans that will help to close gaps and mitigate barriers. The other executive order on workforce is equally important but very distinct. Now, what it focuses on and affirms is that the federal workforce should reflect the diversity of the American public. So the workforce EO asked agencies to systematically embed equity and diversity, inclusion, accessibility, and in some frameworks, belonging into all of the processes that go into recruiting and hiring and promoting within the federal workforce. So, so Kimberlyn, yes. sorry to cut you off, but do you see this as a positive to have two executive orders or is this more of a burden on federal agencies? I think it's a tremendous opportunity because what's really required is to build up what we call muscle memory and the work and capabilities that are needed to advance equity in the workforce are different from but related to those that are required to advance equity and outcomes. So what agencies are doing through these two executive orders and a portfolio of others that also include equity is building up that muscle memory and building up their capabilities for equity. So let's talk about your recommendations then for agencies to assess equity within their services to the public. Sure. So the executive order calls for several things. First, for agencies to create an equity team 
not just of the coalition of the willing, but with particular differentiated roles like evaluation and data and other roles that we know bring capacity to equity assessments. The second thing is for agencies to engage in broad-based stakeholder conversations so that their work and the insights of stakeholders is represented in this effort. And third, because developing this muscle memory requires an investment in people and in new knowledge, we've stepped up an equity learning community and have delivered well over 30 executive education style modules to the federal workforce. And what about internally for the workforce and their hiring procedures and also retention policies? So that's a very important part of the workforce EO, and it rests on several pillars. The first of these is that accessibility is paramount, and we want to make sure that the federal workforce is accessible and that there are opportunities for those with disabilities. The second is the workforce EO includes the first comprehensive, I believe, the first comprehensive approach to sexual harassment and other forms of harassment in the workforce. And this EO also affirms the importance of the federal government being an employer of choice for LGBTQ individuals and offers pathways for those who were formerly incarcerated. I think another critical part of this workforce, uh, and this goes to the early career folks, is to reduce the reliance on unpaid labor, unpaid internships, so that those who uh, come from low income backgrounds or first generation uh, Americans can also explore public service at an early phase in their career. And that often sets the stage for joining the federal workforce later on. So Kimberlyn, what do you think is the best way to ensure that any gains in equity aren't just short-lived and actually exactly. continue into the long term past the current administration? Exactly. So we use two uh, metaphors here. We talk about the sprint activities, the things that agencies can do now with their equity assessments or known barriers and try to address those. But the long-term work, we use the metaphor of a marathon, that it takes stamina, it takes uh, planning, and it takes then execution over time. And to do that work, the most important opportunity we have is to build equity into the normal way in which government works. So it's a little wonky, but one of the most exciting dimensions of both EOs is how they include equity in things like agency priority goals, strategic planning, agency learning agendas, and budget templates. This is what will make equity something that is just a regular and uh, comfortable way of addressing equity going forward. All right. Well, Kimberlyn, thanks so much. Nice talking to you. Coming next, DOD continues to boost spending for technology advancements. Straight ahead on Government Matters, tackling risks of interoperability before the programs get too far ahead. We'll be right back. The Defense Department continues to increase spending on the Joint All-Domain Command and Control, or JADC2. But the bump in funding for that program comes with hurdles to making it actually joint and interoperable. Nick Sinai is former Deputy Chief Technology Officer at the White House. He's currently a Senior Advisor at Insight Partners. Nick, welcome to the program. Hey, Mimi. Great to see you again. What are the interoperability issues that JADC2 has, and how could things get worse in, in that respect? Well, let's just uh, set some context for your viewers here. 
Um, JADS C2 is really this idea of being able to get data from one platform to another. So from one uh, satellite, from, from one plane. Um, and these are traditionally monolithic systems or really kind of big iron systems. And so how do you get those to the, the commander, the decision maker in real time? And you know, traditionally, uh, this has been kind of an afterthought and the Department of Defense is waking up and realizing that it really needs to uh, um, get this data to flow in near real time and real time uh, across services, because that's ultimately where the, the, the joint fight is. So is that happening now? Is, is JADC2 being created and implemented in a way that is fully joint and interoperable? Well, there's some promising uh, prospects. Uh, so, so MAVEN, which was the high profile project uh, program that General Shanahan started, and now Colonel Kukor is, is running. Um, and that has a, a number of commercial uh, software and AI vendors. And they've had some really uh, promising demonstrations at, at, at Northern Command uh, and with the Army Airborne Corps, um, but using other services as well. And so being able to demonstrate um, really that, that JADC2 concept. Uh, so that's that's been promising, but we still have a long ways to go in the department. Uh, we still have a lot of traditional defense primes um, who, who, you know, they aren't in the business of, of um, sharing their data and, and they're, they're thinking about software almost afterwards, right? And so the question is, how, how can the uh, Defense Department uh, make data flow better? Um, and one of the ways that they're gonna do that is, is fund additional investments in JADC2. And so that's both at the service level, so you see a number of programs um, in the Air Force, ABMS, you see convergence and overmatch in the Army and Navy, um, but then you also see uh, JADC2 investments kind of cross services and you see Deputy Secretary Hicks uh, with her data decrees, uh, really looking to make data um, interoperable um, and, and making that a, a condition of, of new investments and, and, and also looking to extend Maven and Advana to the COCOMs. So you're seeing a lot of, of, of important investments. Uh, ultimately, the, the, the strength of, of de the Department of Defense AI and analytical capabilities is going to be based upon the, the, the quality of the data and the interoperability of the data. You know, Nick, I wanted to ask you about that because there are industry leaders, there are people calling for open standards and open architecture. Why isn't that already being done? Well, it, it absolutely needs, needs to be done. Uh, we recently invested in a company called Rebellion Defense, and that's one of their, their uh, animating principles is, is an open architecture. Um, and so it's, it's something that the Deputy Secretary of Defense is focused on, the Chief Data Officer, Dave Spurk, is, is, is focused on. And I think uh, we're seeing the, 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 the traditional defense primes recognize that this is the, the way the world is going. So we'll, we'll continue to see more um, uh, recognition that open APIs uh, and, and less kind of vertical integration is, is the, the path forward. But um, do you and, think that that introduces issues with intellectual property? In other words, who owns that? Well, I, I think that's actually the, the really important point. Thank you for, for raising that, in that um, we need to have more great commercial companies. And commercial companies own their own IP, right? So the DOD will own the data, it's, it's DOD's data, but the actual uh, uh, software that great commercial companies you know, will build, uh, they're, they're going to come in and provide that to the Department of Defense. And so we need great commercial software companies 
and AI companies that are going to provide this kind of capability with open architectures, to your point. So who would be in charge of creating those data standards that would ensure that interoperability that's needed for JADC2? So we're not trying to retrofit it later. Yeah, so you know, ultimately this is the, the, the Joint Chiefs and, and the, the Chief Data Officer both have important roles in, in uh, fostering the, those, those open data standards. Um, so those would be the kind of the primary ones. And, um, but it also depends on the particular program um, because JADC2 is actually a number of different programs. Um, and so that's, that's the, the important thing is, is you know, in these individual programs, uh, you know, are, are, are they uh, buying vertically integrated capability or are they really enforcing open architecture um, uh, as, as they uh, procure and, and continue to procure great software? Because that's the point is it's not just once and done, um, you know, these things change over time. You know, you mentioned there's been increased investment in JADC2. Where do you think that money should go towards? What's the highest priority? I think the highest priority is, is um, capabilities that can be fielded today uh, because the, the real uh, um, innovation here is going to be what operational commanders do in the field. Um, and so that's what we've seen with these recent exercises in Scarlet Dragon and, and Northern Command. And so you want to be able to take the, the kind of real-time sensing from satellites and other and other sensors that we have uh, around the world, and you want to be able to use that that kind of uh, of data information in in real time. Um, but you want the, the commanders to 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 innovate on on new ways to do things because the the adversary is not going to kind of fight you know the war from from 50 years ago. So you, you need that kind of innovation in the field, and the more that we can actually field capability. Uh, and continue to, to test it and try new things, um, not just the technology, but also kind of the way that they do their exercises. I think that that's where the magic is going to be. All right. Well, Nick, we'll leave it at that. Thank you so much for joining us. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And don't forget, you can find every episode of our program on YouTube. Hit the subscribe button to see all the videos we post. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges.